fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearance, appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Happy uh, Father's Day to all of you out there. Don't forget to call your father sometime today, or probably more like call your mom and she'll tell him. Um, so don't forget. Let me, um, let me pray for us before we go into the word. Father, we thank you now that we have heard your word spoken to us. We now ask for your Holy Spirit to come to bring illumination that we might have a better understanding of this text, and especially for your Spirit to work within us, to prick us when necessary, to inspire us by the truth and the promise and the grace that's found here in this passage, that we might strive towards greater holiness and maturity in Christ. We pray this for your glory, our good, and in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, for the past few months, we've been working through the book of 1 Timothy, and we are nearing the finish line. I find this morning's passage to be a good summary of the entire letter, because here we are coming across a direct charge from Paul to Timothy, which is fitting because this letter is essentially just one big charge to Timothy. It's a charge for him to faithfully carry out his pastoral duties in the city of Ephesus. Timothy was responsible to stay in Ephesus to pastor a troubled church, one where false teachers had infiltrated, and they were now teaching heresy, and they were creating controversy, and Paul knew that this was going to be a difficult task for Timothy, not only because he was young, but because he didn't share Paul's temperament. They had very different personalities. You see, in his second letter to Timothy, Paul had to encourage Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel. He had to remind him that God gave him a spirit not of fear and timidity and cowardice, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. And so at the close of this particular letter, what Timothy needs most is to hear a strong word of encouragement from his discipler in the faith. He needs to hear a charge to remain faithful to his God-given calling to lead this church, to help it become a pillar of the gospel uh, in the city of Ephesus. And that's exactly what he gets here in verses uh, 11 to 16 of chapter 6. What Paul does is to charge Timothy to conduct himself in such a way to live a certain kind of life that stands in stark contrast to the false teachers that are in the church. He wants Timothy to be different. 
Look with me at verse 11. Look at how it starts off with that phrase, but as for you. They're teaching different doctrine, but as for you. They're puffed up with conceit and yet know nothing, but as for you. They're driven by the love of money, imagining godliness as a means of financial gain, but as for you, O man of God. Now, that's not a, that's not a casual throwaway label he's using there. Man of God is a loaded phrase, especially in the Old Testament. There was actually only a few men who received that honored title. It was reserved for men like Moses, men like David, or Elijah, or Elisha. And in fact, here in verse 11, it's the only place in the New Testament where a person is directly addressed by that title, by calling him a man of God. And so Paul is not using it lightly. He knows, and Timothy knows, that being a man of God means something. It means you're God's man. It's a possessive phrase. It means Timothy belongs to God. He lives for God. And this, of course, is in contrast to the false teachers who are described as lovers of money. They live for money. They're money's man. But as for you, Timothy, you're God's man. You see what Paul's doing? He's trying to inspire him. He's, he's placing Timothy in, in a long line of succession that stretches back to all the mature saints of old. What, what a privilege it is to be considered a man of God, to be known as God's man, to be named alongside Moses and David and Elijah. And that, friends, should really be that should really be the heartbeat of, of every Christian, a burning desire to be known as God's man or God's woman, where you're characterized by a degree of maturity such that everyone can tell who or what you live for. Everyone can tell who or what you belong to, not money or careers man, not, not approval or romances woman, no, the heart of a mature Christian belongs first and foremost to God. We want to be his. We want to live for him. And so as we study today's passage, our goal is to figure out what a mature Christian looks like. What are the particular characteristics that identify a believer as one who is spiritually mature, or at least one who is along the way? What marks of maturity should I be looking for in my own life? Well, be prepared to be uncomfortable because you may come to realize that you have some maturing left to do. But you know, that's okay. That's exactly what the Word of God is supposed to do. It's supposed to convict us while at the same time hold out promises that inspire us and encourage us towards greater maturity in Christ. So whatever God's word is going to do in your heart this morning, receive it. Receive the ministry of the word. So this is our question. What are the marks of a mature Christian? Well, in our text, I can see five. If you want to look in your uh, a bulletin, there's an outline listing those five 
marks. And I, I try to put them in a way that you can remember. A while back, I came across a really good outline of this passage by John MacArthur. And so I, I'm taking the liberty to tweak that outline a bit uh, for our purposes today. And so what you're going to see here is that a mature Christian is marked by, first, what you flee from, second, what you follow after, third, what you fight for, fourth, what you fasten onto, and fifth, what you are faithful to. So first, a mature Christian is marked by what you flee from. Let's look at verse 11 again. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, the these things are referring to what Paul mentioned earlier in verses 3 to 10. He's talking about the marks of the false teachers. He's referring to their conceit. He's referring to their craving for controversy, their divisiveness, their love of money. These things that mark them. Paul is warning Timothy to flee these things, to flee from such sins, to flee any temptation, to think or to act in like manner. And every time, every time that word flee, that particular Greek word is used in the New Testament, it is always used in the context of a fleeing from a perceived danger to your life. And so in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, Joseph and family flee from King Herod, who seeks to kill them. Or in Mark, chapter 14, verse 50, the disciples flee from Gethsemane in fear for their lives. Or in Acts, chapter 27, verse 30, the sailors attempt to flee from a sinking ship in a life raft. And so Paul's command for Timothy to flee is a warning to run away from a clearly perceived danger to your life. Now, in a sense, that just comes natural to us, right? It's the, it's the fight or flight reflex. When certain dangers threaten us, one natural instinctive response is flight. It's the flee. Like, no one has to train you. No one has to charge you to run when you see the funnel cloud of a tornado forming above you coming down. Or, or no one, if, if, if you're in Hawaii, no one has to tell you to run if you see that lava flow coming at you. You just know to do it. It's a natural instinct to flee. But when it comes to spiritual dangers, when you're dealing with threats to your spiritual life, for some reason, fleeing is not the natural instinct. Instead of running from sin, our reflex is to entertain it. Instead of fleeing from various sins, we have this tendency to tolerate them. Why is that? Why is it that we are so quick to flee from mortal danger, but not spiritual danger. That's probably because we don't perceive spiritual dangers as being truly dangerous. There are sins that we just don't see as real threats to us. I mean, yes, obviously there are sins we all recognize to be dangerous and to be avoided, but then there are many that we just easily tolerate in our lives, don't we? There's this really good book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. And he gets right at this issue and how there are certain sins that are often treated as acceptable for Christians. He has chapter titles 
on anxiety, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience and irritability, anger, judgmentalism, envy, and worldliness. We too easily tolerate these things. But one of the marks of a mature Christian is the ability to see the clear and present danger in every sin, no matter how small, no matter how acceptable it is to those around us, and at the same time to have the readiness to flee, to run. I've shared this story before, but I I grew up in the Boy Scouts, and in my scout manual, it explained how to tell the difference between a harmless king snake and the deadly coral snake. Because they were both three-banded snakes made up of red, yellow, and black bands, but they differed in their color order. And so we were taught a rhyme in order to remember the difference. Red on yellow, kill a fellow. Red on black, friend of Jack. And I remember one camping trip, we were hiking along and a bunch of us boys were trying to recall the rhyme and we couldn't get it straight. And our scoutmaster interrupted and said, boys, I've got an easier rhyme to remember. See a three-banded snake, run! (laughs) And there is a lot of wisdom in that. So also in the Christian life, there are times when in the face of sin and temptation, the only recourse is to run. Don't entertain the sin. Don't try to analyze it. Don't don't test yourself seeing how close you can get before it bites. No, you don't mess around with sin. That would be a mark of immaturity. Mature Christians know when it's time to run. They perceive the true danger of sin, and at the same time, they know their own weakness. They're not under the illusion that they have defeated any sin in their life to the point that they are no longer susceptible to its charm. And so when it rears its ugly head, the mature Christian flees. He or she runs. Now, whenever you flee in flee from one direction, you're now going in another. So after Paul warns Timothy to flee sin, notice how he continues in verse 11 with a command to, look there, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And so what this means is that Christian maturity requires more than just avoiding evil, but doing good. In other words, the mature are known by what they follow after and not just what they flee from. This is our second mark of maturity. It goes like this. A mature Christian is marked by what you follow after. Just as nature hates a vacuum, the soul, if emptied of some evil, it needs to be filled with something else. And if your soul is not filled with virtue and goodness, then that's something else might be worse than what was there before. Jesus warned of something like this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. Listen to Jesus. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, 
I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, if the house is empty, swept, and put in order, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Well, likewise, immature Christians try to flee certain evils, but they fail to follow after goodness. But the mature not only empty their lives of sin, but they also fill it with righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, these six virtues that you see here in verse 11, they can be broken down really into three pairs. The first pair, righteousness and godliness, it describes the inner heart and the outward conduct Right? So the mature Christian is one who, who, perceive, who pursues after, is known by her righteous motives and godly behavior. It's maturity on the inside and on the outside. The second pair there, faith and love, it represents the essential virtues of the, Christian, of the mature Christian. They're usually paired together because mature Christians not only trust God for salvation, they also treasure God above all other loves in their lives. God's not just the object of their faith. He is the supreme object of their desire. They love God, not just believe him for salvation. The third pair, steadfastness and gentleness, represent the right response to a world that's very hostile to the gospel, to the people of God. There's this idea of gentleness in the midst of suffering. A mature Christian is one who is marked by the ability to endure the attacks of a hostile culture and at the same time to still be gentle towards hostile people. And so righteousness and godliness, faith and love, steadfastness, and gentleness. These are six virtues that a mature believer in Christ will follow after, will pursue, will, will seek to fill themselves with. And so ask yourself this question. Is the sum aggregate of your Christian experience mainly about trying to avoid certain sins? Like, are, are you only known as a Christian by the things that you flee from? by what you don't do, or, or are you known as a Christian by what you follow after, by what you passionately pursue? Are you pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness? Now, here's a third mark of maturity. A mature Christian is marked by what you fight for. He's not, he not only flees and follows, he fights. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Isn't that interesting that right after telling Timothy to pursue gentleness, Paul tells him to fight? So apparently they're not in contradiction. You can be gentle and a fighter at the same time. To understand how that could be, you just have to understand that this word for fight doesn't necessarily mean doing physical harm to someone or arguing with someone. The Greek word is agonizomai, and the root word that you hear there, agon, is where we get the English word agony or to agonize. 
And so it was used in the realm of battle, but also used in the realm of athletics. And so don't just assume Paul is referring to combat. He could be referring to the struggle and the exertion that's involved in athletic training and competition. Literally, he's telling Timothy to agonize the good agony. But what is he to agonize and struggle for? Well, look at verse 12. What does it say? Agonize the good agony of the faith. But what does that mean? Well, on one level, it means that Timothy is to fight for the faith. That is, to fight for the purity and the truthfulness of the gospel. Because we already know it's being challenged by false teachers in the church of Ephesus. But the good fight of the faith could also be a fight to keep faith. A fight to keep believing in the gospel. Notice how in verse 10, Paul had already warned that some who were eager for money had wandered away from the faith. They left the gospel. They abandoned Christ. The false teachers stopped believing. They stopped believing the gospel. And so the fight is to do the exact opposite of them. The fight is to keep believing, to persevere in faith in the gospel. The immature Christian is the one who assumes that the gospel is just this message you only need to hear and put your faith in once at the very beginning of your journey. The good news that's centered on the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ and his cross, the power of salvation by grace through faith, the immature consider that message to be the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's elementary. It's for seekers. It's for new Christians. Once you make that decision to trust in it, you can just move on to meteor topics and lessons. But the mature in Christ recognize that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith, but as Tim Keller puts it, it's the A to Z of the Christian faith. It's a message you never grow too old or too mature to hear. You need the gospel preached to you week in and week out because your sinful flesh, this fallen world, and your enemy, the devil, are going to work in tandem to make you forget the realities of the gospel, to create within you an unbelieving heart, and to cause you to question your salvation and to doubt the goodness of God. They are working against you every day. Picture yourself on a river in a rowboat. You have two options. You can go upstream or you can go down. Now, if you want to go upstream, you're going to have to fight against the current. You are going to have to row very hard. But if you want to go downstream, well, it's simple. You just take your hands off the oar and you just let the current take you along. You just let it, you know, just bring your boat wherever it wants to go. And I know that that option sounds appealing, right? Sounds very relaxing. Just kind of cruising on a river, but you need to know something. You need to know something about this river. This river flows downstream towards a mighty waterfall. And at the bottom of that waterfall are jagged rocks 
that will surely destroy you. And so it is with the Christian life. There is no standing still in the Christian life. The option is not between fighting the good fight or standing still. No, you are either fighting against the currents of of unbelief in the world and in your own heart, or you are just being carried away by them, heading towards sure destruction. Friends, you either go one way or the other. There is no standing still. And that's why the mature in Christ row hard. They row in that direction upstream as hard as they can. That's why they fight. That's why they struggle. That's why they agonize against the currents of unbelief. That's why they, they, they make it a priority to sit under the preaching of the gospel every Lord's day. That's why they preach the gospel to their own hearts every single day as they spend time with God, spend time with him in his word, in prayer. They, they fight the good fight of the faith every day because they know the alternative is to risk a shipwreck of faith. The mature fight the good fight of the faith. And this relates to the fourth mark. A mature Christian is marked by what you fasten onto. What you fasten onto. Look back at the second half of verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul here is referring to the public confession of faith that Timothy made, most likely the one that he made at his baptism, which in the early church followed soon after you made after your conversion. Uh, and, and notice how Paul mentions Timothy's calling. But here, he's not referring to his call to ministry. He's not referring to his call to be a pastor of Ephesus. He's talking here about the call to salvation, the call to eternal life that all who are believers have been called to. You see, when the gospel was preached to Timothy at a very young age, the Lord issued an inward, regenerating, faith-giving, blindness removing divine call into Timothy's heart, which resulted in his conversion. He believed in Christ, and there he received eternal life. And now Paul is telling him to take hold of that eternal life to which he was called. So think about it here. What's going to motivate Timothy, what's really going to motivate all of us to keep fighting the good fight of the faith is not the fear of failure. We're not supposed to be motivated by the fear of losing eternal life. We are supposed to be motivated by the reality of this call that God has called us. If you've been called by God to eternal life, you have every motivation you need to take hold of it. It's no different than what Paul taught in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, where he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining agonizing towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So Paul is telling us Christians to take hold of something, something we already have in Christ. 
as John Stott puts it, quote, it is possible to possess something without embracing it and without enjoying it. It's possible to possess something without embracing it and enjoying it. He's saying you can possess eternal life without actually embracing it, without taking a hold of it as if it is truly yours. You see, friends, every true Christian has eternal life in their grips, but only the mature are gripped by it. Only the mature have fastened on to the future reality of eternal life so tight that it bleeds into their present experience. Eternal life is making a difference in their lives right now. So Christian, I ask you, is the reality that you have been called to enjoy eternal life with God in Christ making a difference in your life right now? Now, is it affecting your priorities? Is it affecting how you spend your money, how you treat other people, how you go about your work or to go about your studies, how you raise your children, how you treat your spouse? Maybe by the grace of God, you have eternal life in your grips, but are you gripped by it? That's how you know if you're mature. Now, there's one more mark to consider, one more thing. A mark, a mature Christian is marked by what you are faithful to. I see this in verses 13 to 14. Let's read that together. So look there, verse 13. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 15, which he will display at the proper time. So notice with me how a mature Christian is marked by faithfulness to to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Now, what does that mean? What commandment is he referring to? What commandment is Timothy to keep? Well, specifically, it's just referring to the commands we already looked at, to flee and to follow and to fight and to fasten onto, now just taken as a whole. But more generally, we can read the commandment as just a shorthand for Timothy's life and calling. The commandment is really just the sum of everything he's commanded to do and to be as a Christian and specifically in his calling as the pastor of this church. This charge to keep his life and calling unstained and free from reproach is simply just a restatement of what Paul already said back in chapter 4 in verse 16 where he told Timothy to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. That's what mature Christians do. They keep a close watch on their life and their doctrine. They live their lives and they carry out their particular callings with such honor and integrity that they adorn the gospel. They make the teaching about God our Savior attractive to the world. So let's summarize what we've seen so far. 
The marks of a mature Christian are as follows. First, they flee from all known sin in their lives. Second, they follow after the character of Christ till it's reflected in their own. Third, they fight the good fight to persevere in faith. Fourth, they fasten on to eternal life until it bleeds into their present experience. And fifth, they are faithful to keep these first four commandments and to keep their lives and callings free from any stain or reproach. Now, I'm not surprised if some of you are feeling pretty low right now. If you're realizing just how much more you have to grow in maturity. Well, I have some bad news to tell you, as well as some good, but let's start with the bad. The bad news, my friends, is that this charge to be a mature man or to be a mature woman of God, this charge to keep your life and your calling free of stain or reproach, notice how Paul is giving this charge in the presence of God. Look at verse 15. One day all of us will stand before, as he puts it, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, and we are going to have to give an account of how we have kept the commandment, how we have kept the charge. On that day, the light of his perfect holiness is going to shine on us like a spotlight. And all the times we failed to flee sin or fell short of following after righteousness or surrendered in the fight of faith or loosened our grip onto eternal life, every shortfall, every stain, every blemish in our lives will be revealed on that day. Oh, it's no wonder, Paul says in verse 16, that God dwells He dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. The fact is, we are just too ashamed to approach God, too scared to find out what his holiness might reveal in us. But, you know, even if we wanted to approach, we can't. It says we can't even look at him. No one has ever gazed directly at the unshielded holiness of God and survived. It would be like looking directly at the sun. But the holiness of God burns a billion times brighter and hotter than the sun. Sinners like us can no further approach God than a snowman can approach the sun. This is the bad news. Considering the marks of maturity, man, that already makes me feel bad enough. And now you're saying that I'm accountable before God to perfectly exhibit these marks in my life, unstained and free from reproach. I'm devastated. I mean, it's devastating to think about how much reproach still stains us and just how unapproachable God is. Like I said, This is bad news. But now you're ready for the good. The good news, my friends, is that even though God dwells in unapproachable light, he has made a way for sinners like us to still approach. He did it 
by sending his beloved son. And Paul recognizes this fact. And that's why he says in verse 13, notice he says, I'm giving you this charge in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. If you recall, at his trial, Pilate asked if he was the king of the Jews, and Jesus made the good confession, and that sealed his fate. It sent him to the cross. But Jesus was not the tragic victim of Roman injustice. No, he went to the cross. He laid down his life willingly, knowing that it is through the cross that he would reconcile sinners to God. And through his flesh, he would pave a new and living way for us to approach the unapproachable. Friends, you need to hear this. More importantly, you need to believe this because without the, without the confidence to approach God that's found in Christ Jesus, your efforts to grow in maturity will be predominantly motivated by fear. Fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of punishment, but that is not Christianity. Christianity is not driven by fear. It's driven by love. It's our love for God. It's our loving gratitude for Jesus. It's our faith in his promises that motivate us to become mature men and women of God. Church, let me just leave you with an encouraging word that you're going to find in verse 14. Look in verse 14. Notice how this charge to keep the commandment is our responsibility. We need to continue doing this until, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will display at the proper time. I realize that fleeing and following and fighting and fastening and trying to be faithful is hard work. This is not easy. But one day, one day it will all be finished. We only need to agonize until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Because when Christ returns, all sin and temptation will be eradicated. There will be no more fleeing. When Christ returns, we will be fully mature. There will be no more following after once we perfectly reflect the character of Christ. When Christ returns, there will be no more fighting to keep faith because faith will be no more. We will now see God face to face. And so you can put down your sword. The fight will be over. When Christ returns, there will be no more fastening because we will have finally taken hold of the prize of eternal life. And lastly, when Christ returns, after all of our striving to be faithful, we will finally hear those sweet words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen. Father, we thank you for this charge. And now we ask that by your spirit, you give us the spiritual strength, the courage, and the perseverance to keep this charge until the appearing of your son, Jesus.
Oh, Lord Jesus, do not tarry. Please, come, come quickly. And until that day, we will keep this charge faithful in your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen.